Folks, we're going to be thinking um, for some time about prayer. We're starting a new series tonight, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. We're calling it, that'll, that'll become clear as we go on. Tonight, I'm going to speak for a few moments uh, to get the ball rolling, as it were, and then I'm going to hand over to Stephen, who's going to, to bring us really the first address or first sermon in this series. So just some some stuff to get us thinking about prayer and about this series in particular. I've come to the conclusion that the vast majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. Don't worry, that's not a statement that I'm making. It's a statement from the great Bishop R.C. Ryle in the late 19th century. I wonder, do you agree? The vast majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. I, I know that that's a conversation that I hear in church leaderships. You know, are we praying or is there prayer happening in our churches? Sometimes I think we imagine that prayerlessness is a, a new thing. And here we have a guy writing over a century ago and saying that he uh, imagines or, or perceives that prayerlessness is going on in his time. I wonder if it would be closer to the truth if we recognized that most of God's people in most times and places have found it hard to pray, have struggled with what it means to to be people of prayer. I think if we said that and moved on, that wouldn't be a bad bad place to start. As I've got closer to, to starting this series, um, there have been times when I've just been wondering. It, take, it takes me quite a long time to decide to do a series. Uh, I tend to start the process maybe six months or a year in advance. And over those months, um, I'm usually second-guessing myself. Oh, is it a good idea? Is it the right thing? Is it the right time? Prayer is a funny one because sometimes I feel like, oh, I should wait until I'm praying better myself. And sometimes I think, well, it'll be a long time waiting. So sometimes the Lord just nudges and says, well, get on with it. I've sensed that nudge um, in these last months um, to to maybe do a bit of thinking, teaching uh, about prayerfulness. To steal a phrase from Richard Foster, as I teach in this series, I'll be speaking for all the prayerless persons I have been and all the prayerful persons I hope to become. For all the prayerless persons I have been, and all the prayerful persons I hope to become. Um, I, I'm, one of my huge weaknesses is the level of idealism that I'm cursed with. I just, I would love everyone to be perfect all the time. And one thing I, I don't like doing is repeating myself and saying the same stuff over and over again. And there are a few areas in my life where I more need to do it than to say I don't pray as much or the way I'd like to. I was saying that 30 years ago and 20 years ago and 10 years ago and every year in between. And here we are. 
tonight. The person who's helped me learn most about the life of prayer through his teaching is uh, James Houston, the founding Chancellor of Regent College. I first read his book, Prayer, The Transforming Friendship, before I went to Regent in the summer of 97. And I've been thinking about uh, prayer differently ever since. I, I blame him for all the struggles I have with prayer when I'm trying to fit into the, the church culture and being a good minister and all that. He talks about prayer in ways that are quite different uh, than, than a lot of people do. I'll, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs from early in that book that will give you a sense of how he thinks about prayer. For many years, prayer was probably the weakest dimension in my life as a Christian. My father was a very devout man, and I greatly respected his way of life. The problem is that moral admiration is often a cause of moral paralysis. And this was exactly my problem. I used to think that prayer was a spiritual exercise, something that needed to be worked at, like running or vaulting. But I was never any good at sports. And perhaps I'd never be any good at prayer either. After years of feeling useless and guilty, I began to realize the truth of a comment made by one of the early fathers of the church, Clement of Alexandria. He said that prayer is keeping company with God. This began to give me a new focus in prayer. I began to see prayer more as a friendship than as a rigorous discipline. It started to become more of a relationship and less of a performance. Isn't that brilliant? Prayer as a relationship rather than a performance. A friendship, not an obligation. I've taught on prayer a number of times uh, during my ministry here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. And there's a particular catalyst, probably each time I've done it, it's because something's happened that, that catalyzes uh, the moment. So uh, I thought I'd share with you what it is in this case. Uh, and then I'll finish these sort of introductory comments. Um, three years ago, I bought an old book called Lord Teach Us to Pray by Alexander White. Has anybody heard of or read that book? This is a, a copy. Uh, the book doesn't look like this. The book doesn't look like anything. It, it looks like an old Victorian volume. Um, this is... Um, something that people have edited uh, and put together. Alexander White, uh, you'll understand better when I explain, he was a Church of Scotland minister around about the turn of the 19th century. He was a brilliant preacher, probably the preacher of his generation in Scotland. But he was also a man of prayer. And those two things don't go together as much as we might imagine. That the great preachers are the great men of prayer. Don't make that assumption. So this is one thing that Alexander White is known for, this preaching and this prayerfulness. In the winter of 1895 to 96, he began a series of sermons, uh, and it was based on Luke 
11, chapter 1, the passage where Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. So that's where we have uh, the title of our series from too. He used that verse as a kind of a launch pad for lots of sermons about prayer. He, he preached a lot of them in that winter, but, but he preached a lot about prayer uh, from then on in. So this book, Lord Teaches to Pray, it's a collection of sermons, 23 in this particular edition, from that winter and from then on. I read it because somebody told me to read it. Uh, Eugene Peterson said it was his practice for years on a Sunday morning to read an Alexander White sermon before he got up to preach. Now, I don't read these on Sunday mornings. That doesn't feel to me like the right way to get ready to preach. Uh, I wish I was in that frame of mind where I was so relaxed and at ease and prepared that I could be reading other people's stuff. But I started reading these sermons on Kindle first. I think it cost me 99p to buy this book. I'd go out uh, on my bike and a Kindle is a good way to read because you don't need to bring anything with you but your phone. So, so I remember a few mornings down in the poacher's pocket, sitting at the big table where you walk in through the door on a, on a Monday morning and reading these sermons. My goodness, they were arresting. You know, I've heard and preached a lot of sermons. I don't remember a lot of the ones I've preached. But I do remember Alexander White's. So these, these sermons had two effects on me. I didn't forget them. The images were burned into my, my mind, into my heart. And the other thing about them, they made me pray. That's not bad. You could hear a lot of teaching about prayer and still not pray. These sermons had this effect on me that I actually wanted to and found myself praying. We're going to, well, listen, buy that book if, uh, if you're interested. It's old language and all that. I'm rereading these sermons and I'm finding, I'm also reading Calvin's Institutes at the moment, so I think he's an easier read than Calvin. If you read the old boys, it's hard for the first while, but you get into the way of it. Your old vocabulary starts to grow and it, it's okay. So buy this and read it far better than hearing me or us muddle our way through it. But we're going to try and re-preach, uh, not, not, not the 23 sermons in this collection, but some of them. Um, Richie and Stephen and I are going to share this. I've said to the fellows, choose one, one or two of those sermons that really grab you, that really speak to you, and then come and share a little of that with us. As you... As you read Alexander White, or hopefully as we share it and maybe quote him a little bit, or you'll find that he has two or three incredible gifts. Four things I've listed here. He's an amazing imagination. I think we've lost that in the modern world, actually. Because we can look everything up and constantly stimulate, our, our minds aren't as... You know, minds used to be creative places. Now they're just places that have wave after wave of stuff. So he uses some brilliant images, as I say. I found those very arresting. A second thing, he's an incredibly dramatic preacher. There's real power uh, when he preaches. Hopefully we'll be able to show you that. A third thing, 
He said himself one time that he'd like to be known as a specialist in the study of sin. That's a bit countercultural. I don't I don't see many ministers saying that, you know, in their wee blurbs when they're doing their seminar uh, blurbs coming to hear me. Uh, I, I see myself as an expert in the subject of sin. He'll only draw attention to our sin after he's uh, recognized his own. And finally, he'll put the wind in our sails because he preaches grace. One of his most devoted elders, one time reflecting on his preaching of sin and grace, he said, No preacher has so often or so completely dashed me to the ground as has Dr. White. But no man has more immediately or more tenderly picked me up and set me on my feet again. Alexander White is not from our culture. That's a good thing. We need some messengers from beyond to help us to see the things that we aren't seeing anymore. What we'll get here is a message of challenge and of hope from another time. I'm going to read uh, the passage um, and then we'll sing a couple of songs before Stephen comes up to, to share a first message with us. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 11. So Alexander White, uh, as I say, used this verse as a kind of a springboard, a launch pad for a lot of these sermons. I suppose the idea, uh, page 1042, the idea that we need help in prayer. You know, I'm, I'm struck already. I've probably named four or five different people who have helped me think about prayer. We need help. I wonder where we're getting our help to pray. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you is a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up to give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God. The sermon of of Alexander White's that I'm looking at tonight, I'm very, very loosely uh, looking at it. Um, And it's entitled, The Magnificence of Prayer. Now, magnificent isn't really a word uh, that we use much these days. And I I was thinking, should I change this? Should I bring this to a more up-to-date version of the word? So, like any great English scholar, I typed it into an online thesaurus, because I hadn't a clue. Uh, And some of the words that it gave me instead were the splendor of prayer, the glory of prayer, the majesty of prayer, the radiance, the transcendence of prayer. And I thought... Those are some pretty good words. Am I maybe missing something here by trying to get away from this word magnificence? So I looked into it a wee bit. And historically, magnificent was not only used as a word to describe men and their flying machines, but that one just goes straight over. No, just wasn't funny. That's all right. Um, But it was used as a word to describe the greatest kings, rulers, kingdoms, your magnificence. And that actually fits really well with what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Because for a lot of us, and I absolutely count myself in on this, and Christoph has mentioned it already, we constantly forget just how special, just how magnificent being able to pray is. You see, as Christoph said, we we all struggle with prayer, don't we? At least I hope it's not just me. I should probably sit down if that's the case. But we all struggle with prayer. Prayer is hard. Sometimes we we don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we don't think it's doing any good or making a difference. We sometimes feel like our prayers are going no higher than the ceiling. Sometimes in the busyness of life, it just gets forgotten about. And sometimes because of how we're living, sin we're maybe dealing with, we just don't think maybe God's going to be that interested to hear what we have to say. See, I think we struggle sometimes with praying and and living this prayerful life because we forget two things. And these are two things that Alexander White in his sermon mentions. The first one is to think magnificently of God. And the second is a quote from Paul in Romans 11, 13, which says, I magnify mine office. That's the Alexander White language. In more modern translations, it's I make much of my ministry. Think magnificently of God and magnify your office. You see, I reckon we sometimes struggle with prayer because we forget who God is. We forget to think magnificently of God. And we forget who we are because of him. We forget to magnify our office, our ministry, our calling from God. So I want to have a quick think about both of these areas. First off, thinking magnificently about God. Do you ever forget who you're praying to? You may think that's a stupid question. There's an episode of The Simpsons that I was watching the other night that sort of sprung into my head. And Homer is facing like a life and death situation. And he he closes his, his eyes, he puts his hands together, and he says, I'm not normally a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me, Superman. That's not what I'm getting at here. We all know that we pray to God. But do you ever forget 
or maybe stop fully grasping what that actually means. We read earlier from Psalm 145, and the start of that psalm, like many of the psalms, is this great reminder of who God is. I'm going to read the start of it again, uh, this time from Eugene Peterson's The Message, just to give us a a different perspective on it. And I'm going to read what he has to say about verses 1 to 9. Listen to what it says about who God is. I lift you high in praise, my God, O my King, and I'll bless your name into eternity. I'll bless you every day and keep it up from now to eternity. God is magnificent. He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to his greatness. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Your your beauty and splendor have everyone talking. I compose songs of your wonders. Your marvelous doings are headline news. I could write books full of the details of your greatness. The fame of your goodness spreads across the country. Your righteousness is on everyone's lips. God is all mercy and grace, not quick to anger, but rich in love. God is good to one and all. Everything he does is suffused with grace. The Psalms are are great at reminding us of who this magnificent God that we pray to is. Our God is the king, not just of our lives, not just of his church, but of the whole universe, of everything that exists. God is the king of existence itself. Without him there is nothing. He is in control and he is all powerful over it all. In his sermon, White says this about the magnificence of God. And again, he starts by quoting from the Psalms. Consider the heavens. The work of his fingers, the moon and the stars which he hath ordained. Consider the intellectual heavens also, angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim. Consider mankind also, made in the image of God. Consider Jesus Christ, the express image of his person. Consider a past eternity and a coming eternity and the revelation thereof that is made to us in the word of God. And in the hearts of his people. And I defy you to think otherwise than magnificently about God. And then after all that I equally defy you to forget or neglect or restrain prayer. Once you begin to think aright of him who is the hearer of prayer. And who waits in all his magnificence to be gracious to you. I absolutely defy you. To live any longer the life you live now. First of all, think magnificently of God. See, what White is getting at here is that thinking about the magnitude, the hugeness of God who created the moon and the stars with just the power of his fingertips can and should lead us to fall to our knees in praise of him. But the nearness and closeness of our God is also incredibly important. God is not just king of the universe, mighty in power, but he is also our loving and caring father. This whole series of sermons, as we've talked about, is based on Luke 11, verse 1. 
Where one of the disciples comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he shares with them what becomes known as the Lord's Prayer. But later on in that same conversation, he says this, and this comes from Luke 11, uh, 11 to 13, which we read earlier. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, when we think rightly about who God is, it changes our whole attitude towards prayer. We recognize that this is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-holy, all-just, all-loving, and he cares deeply about you and I. He cares so much about us, tiny little specks on a tiny little planet in this humongous universe that he has created. Our Father in heaven cares so much about you and me that he gave up the most precious thing that he had, his own son. So that we who so often live in a way that is totally opposed to what he wants and desires for us can be saved from our sin. That is the God that we pray to. The God who is all-powerful and who cares deeply for us. The God who wants us to talk to him. To give him glory and adoration. And remind ourselves, even within our prayers, of who he is. He wants us to talk to him, to confess all the wrong things that we've done against him. Knowing that it's been dealt with through what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. He wants us to talk to him, to thank him for all that he has done for us. And to ask of him, our loving Father, for our needs and the needs of others. To go boldly to him, the God who can do all things and wants to hear and answer our prayers. We need to think more magnificently of God. But as well as remembering who God is, we need to also keep in mind who we are because of him. Those of us who call ourselves Christians recognize the truth that we can now call God our Father. Or we can claim that title uh, because it's always been true. And the Bible tells us that he calls us his sons and daughters. Paul in Romans 8 puts it like this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you can live again in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So if we've accepted Jesus as our saviour and are walking with him, then we are sons and daughters of the Father. And with all the privileges that that brings. And even though we mess up constantly, that makes us no less his children and him no less our loving Father. Because, you see, there's nothing that we can do to ruin what Christ has already done. So we can come to him as a child comes to their parent. And we know that our loving Father will hear our requests and answer them in accordance with his good and perfect will. Peter puts a slightly different spin on this. 
Instead of, of thinking about God as our father and us as his children, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he looks to God more as the king and his disciples as a royal priesthood. Royal in the sense that just like what Paul was saying, um, we are his heirs, we are children of the king. But we are also priests. And one of the jobs of the priests was to intercede on behalf of the people. We are given this responsibility, this privilege, to um, pray and lift up praise and thanksgiving to God, to bring before him our heart, our problems and our requests, but we also get to intercede on behalf of others. We have been given this privilege of being able to bring others before the throne of the king and make requests on their behalf to a king and a father who has said to us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. I magnify mine office. I make much of my ministry. Our office, our ministry, is of a disciple an adopted child of the king, a royal priest. We have, through prayer, direct access to the throne room of the king, a king who loves you more than you could ever imagine and who wants you to make requests of him. Make much of your ministry. Magnify your office. So what does that look like lived out? Well, Alexander White gives an example. He gives this example of what this would look like in the lives of people who were doing it perfectly. And maybe it's something that we can aspire to. I I don't think it's something we're ever going to manage this side of eternity. But this is what he has to say. He says, but there are men, great men, royal men. And please keep in mind this was written a few hundred years ago, ladies, sorry. Men made of noble stuff, cast into a noble mould. And you will never satisfy or quiet those men with all you can promise them or pour out upon them in this life. These are men of a magnificent heart. And only in prayer have their hearts ever got full scope and a proper atmosphere. They would die if they did not pray. They magnify their office. You cannot please them better than to invite and ask them to go to their God on your behalf. They would go of their own motion and accord for you, even if you never asked them. They are like Jesus Christ in this, and he will acknowledge them in this. While you were yet their enemies, they prayed for you, and as good as died for you. What if someone could say that about us? That prayer was as precious as air to us. That without it, we would die. I've got to say, I think if that were the case, I'd have been dead long ago. Do you think magnificently about God? Do you recognize who you are because of him? The office, the status that you have been given? Do you make much of it? I think if we can get these these two things straight in our heads and our hearts, who God is and who we are in him, 
we won't just want to pray, but we will have to respond. This week, you know, maybe you could spend some time with your Bible when you're sitting reading Deuteronomy for, for Christoph's homework. Um, as you flick through and you, you maybe look at some of those, those chapters and those verses, or as maybe as you're looking through the Psalms, you can maybe just think about who God is and maybe use some of those verses to lead you into prayer. Maybe we can remember as we, as we bring our requests before God that, that we're not just talking out loud, that we're not just uh, talking out louder in our heads, but that we are coming to our Father and our King who has brought us into his family, his royal priesthood, and asks us to bring our requests so that he can answer them. Let's think magnificently of God this week. And let's magnify our office. Let's make much of the privilege we have been given to pray. Let's, let's do that now. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we, we come before you, our magnificent God. The God who loves us and who has redeemed us. The God who has given us the status as your children and heirs. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to come to you in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you care about us. That you listen to and answer our prayers. Father, we're, we're sorry for how unimportant we sometimes find prayer. Help us to focus our minds and our hearts on who you are and what you've done for us. And that office that you have called us to. And may you, through your spirit, inspire us to pray more, to pray without ceasing. God, help us to focus on the needs of others in our prayers. Help us to recognize that prayer changes things. Not because of how well we do it or how great we are, but because of the one we pray to. Lord, help us this week to think more magnificently of you and this great gift of prayer that you have given to us. Amen.